test. Whoa. Look, when you got a PhD, you know how to improvise, okay? All right, let's try that again. Good morning, WFR. All right. It's good to see everybody this morning. We are continuing our series called Life on Mission. If you're wondering what the purpose to your life was, if you're wondering if your life has meaning, I'm here to tell you it does. You are on mission from the Lord Jesus Christ to lead people to Him. That's your purpose. So today we're going to talk about how to connect with others. That's the title of this morning's sermon is Connect. So I want you to do an exercise with me. I want you to think back in your mind to the first game you learned how to play as a child. Think back in your mind of the first game you learned how to play as a child. And no, it wasn't chess or Scrabble. Some of you out there suffering from some vanity would like to think, I was a chess grandmaster at three. At my house, we've got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. The first game my six-year-old learned how to play, tic-tac-toe. And probably for a lot of you, that's one of the first games you remember learning to play when you were a child. Now, tic-tac-toe is a simple game. It's a nine-square grid. You've got to connect three of your symbols. You're either X's or your O's. So one of the earliest things we can understand with our human brain is this idea of connection, how to make connection between one or more items. And this is not only true in our ability to learn and reason, but in how we relate to others of utmost importance to our well-being as children is establishing a highly intimate connection with our primary caregiver. And so this has been well documented in research. A lot of this probably you covered in your first semester psychology class in college. And because I just referenced your first semester psychology class in college, probably 25% of you are sleeping right now. If the person next to you fell asleep based on that reference, Nudge them, wake them up. This is 10.30, homeboy. You ought to be awake. You ought to be fired up. This is life on mission. All right, so Harry Harlow studied how rhesus monkeys attached to their mothers. He isolated the babies, and then he offered them like a wire mother with, with food, and he offered a cloth surrogate mother with no food, and he was interested to see which surrogate the rhesus monkeys would prefer. And overwhelmingly, and contrary to their hypothesis, the baby rhesus monkeys preferred the surrogate that was cloth, that was more comfortable. And this ran in contrast to what they anticipated finding because they expected the baby rhesus monkeys to choose food even though the surrogate mother was made of wire and less cuddly. He called this... A con, a con, he called this phenomenon contact comfort. And so a lady then took this idea and expanded it to human beings. She went to Romania and studied orphanages, and she found that children did not thrive, and some even didn't survive, despite the fact they had adequate nutrition, shelter, and hygiene. If they weren't connected enough to their primary caregiver, it cost them dearly, cognitively, and sometimes even their life. So one of the earliest things we can do as human beings is to connect. And, and something's just now coming to my mind. I was told that uh, Mac Perryman was kind of having some 
health trouble out in the foyer. So I want to take just a second to pray over him, and then we'll connect back in. Let's pray. Lord God, Mac uh, just came back to my mind. I know he was having some health trouble. And we are a praying church who knows that you hear our prayers and that you intervene on our behalf. And so we beseech you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to touch and heal Mac and help restore within him the health that he's experienced here lately. And we just ask that you bring his name to this church family uh, throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys keep that in your mind. Um, so one of the earliest things we're able to do as human beings is to connect. And when we come into the Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of us are so excited and so fired up that it's all we can do to connect with others, or we want to. But there are those things in our context that keep us from being candid about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us are secret disciples. Some of you guys that fell asleep during the psychology stuff just woke up because I whispered. So I want to talk about that first. I think one thing that detracts from our ability to evangelize and have a life on mission is we're running around as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're doing it in secret. So my mind is drawn to the life of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a verse here in John chapter 9, 19 that I want to read to you this morning. Let me read it. It's up on the screen here. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now, here's a direct example of a man who was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but because of something going on in his context, he kept it a secret. And some of us are doing the exact same thing. So that's one thing that we need to talk about for a moment this morning is why some of us are choosing to live our Christian lives in secret. Joseph of Arimathea was afraid of what the people around him would think if they knew he was a disciple of Christ. And some of us have that same approach when it comes to sharing our faith or living out loud for the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe because of a rejection in our past or something painful that we've experienced that we've been ridiculed for, we choose to live life not being overt about our relationship with Jesus. Now I want to tell you something, and this is a personal story for me, and some of you know this about me, but I'm hoping this doesn't leave this room. Okay? There are things about me that I would prefer people in the community not to know, and I didn't know these things about me were issues until I got to the South. All right, so here it is. I'm going to disclose to you. I love you. I need to talk about this stuff. It's good for me. All right, so I know nothing, I mean less than nothing, about professional sports, and the sport I know least of anything about, which I know nothing about anything, is football. Okay. Some of you, this is not a safe place for me. Right? Some of you, I can hear that in the back. So, whoa. What? You don't know anything about football. Hang on, man. So yeah, I know nothing about football. I don't know who the coach is for what team or what happened in 1984 
during the national championship when such and such guy ran and it was like a big deal and he got a touchdown in the goal where the end zone is, blah, blah, blah. So here's what I do, right? I'm in a situation where somebody is talking to me about sports and I'm not candid that I don't know anything that they're talking to me about. It's like, uh, yeah, LSU, brothers, less miles, SEC, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, oh, whoa, oh man, I just can't, I don't even know what to say, because really I don't know what to say. And so in Kansas, like in the Midwest, I could do that, and people would leave me alone. They'd be like, all right, man, cool, you don't know what to say. Down here, they're like, what do you mean you don't know what to say? <laughs> like, this is SEC football, dude, you, ha you have an opinion. And I'm like, no, no, I really, really, I don't. I don't. I don't. And then, I, and then they press, and I got, I got to, like, deflect, you know, and move on to something else. Like, why is it so hot today, you know, with the humidity? <laughs> And sometimes I get away with that, but sometimes I have to tip my hand. And that's humiliating to me because the manly men down here know all about SEC football. And so there's a piece of me, because of what I've lived through, leads me not to disclose that I don't fit the kind of masculine mold of the South because I know nothing about football. And I'm being hyperbolic. I'm trying to use an extreme example here. But lots of us feel the same way in sharing our faith because of what people may think or because we're concerned that we won't fit in the mold of those that we're in relationship with. If we share this, just like Joseph of Arimathea, through fear, we keep it secret. Here's another reason we tend to be secret disciples. We're of the impression that we have all of this figured out. And since I've got all of this figured out, there's really no urgency or need to share this with other people. It's not necessarily that I'm afraid, it's just I don't have a sense of urgency. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus had this to say of the Pharisees. He said to the crowds and to his disciples, Matthew 23, verse 1, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything I tell you, everything they tell you. But don't do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, what Jesus is saying is these people are under the impression they have it so figured out that they literally cannot see past their nose. They're spiritually nearsighted. And some of us have been in the church for a while. And we know scripture and we've seen lives change and we've gotten our life pretty figured out. And the enemy has lulled us to sleep and he's done what he does with so many Christians and he makes us spiritually nearsighted. We have no sense of urgency about the need in lives of others because our needs are essentially met and so we really don't care. Another thing I think that often happens, and this is a story I want to share with you again this morning, we get too busy to get involved. We get too busy to get involved. Now, my mind is a little bit fixated on football right now because last night I was blessed with the opportunity to attend my very first football game ever. I've never been to a game. And it just so happened to be one of the coolest experiences I've had recently. I got to go to Death Valley and see the Tigers spank the whatever team they were playing. I can't even really remember. 
which is okay because remember I was candid with you. I don't know anything about football. So that wouldn't register with me because it's not that important. The atmosphere, man, was electric. There was like a sea of purple and gold. The golden band from Tigerland came out and it was a big thing and we got to see Mike the Tiger. And I understood a little bit about why people love the Tigers. But let me tell you two things that I found. I'm regressing here. I'm kind of chasing a rabbit, but I want to do this for uh, just time and purpose's sake. The first thing I want to say is the Louisiana State University Tigers fans are crazy. <laughs> if you've never been to a game, you need to go, but you need to brace yourself for the overwhelming passion and lack of thought that is going on while these people are... <laughs> I'm like up way too far for the coach to even know that I'm at the game. And these guys are like, Miles, take Jennings out. What's he doing? And, they start like, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, he obviously cannot hear you. <laughs> but for these people, it's like they got a direct line to this guy. And it's like this the whole entire game. The second thing is, not only are the LSU Tigers fans crazy, I guess I should just say Tigers is more appropriate. But the longer the game goes on, the more crazy they get, you know? <laughs> Which is something else I wasn't prepared for. Not everybody, I'm not stereotyping, I'm just saying that was kind of a cultural shock for me, all right? So I'm at the game, I get back to Monroe at like 1 a.m. and my mom had to fly in to watch the kids and she had to be at the airport at 5.30. So I'm home at 1, I get up at like 4.45, 5.15, somewhere around there that early, I really don't know what time it was, I just know it was early. We go to the airport, we come back, I'm getting ready, I gotta speak at the eight o'clock, I'm rock and rolling, I'm, 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 I'm in alert mode, I'm busy, I know it's busy, I know it's kinda crazy, and so I hop in my truck, I'm like, see babe, can you put the breakfast in the car, I'm good to go, I got my suit jacket, got my outline, I'm ready to rock and roll, all right, bye. I hop in the car, I am rolling to church. It's like Dr. Trent Langhofer mutates into Dale Earnhardt Jr. and I am rocking it. <laughs> then the only thing that really can happen to slow a person traveling from Monroe to West Monroe to a complete stop actually happened to me. Some of you guys that live in Monroe that come over here know exactly what I'm talking about. The Louisville drawbridge was up. <laughs> so I am like 90 miles an hour. I wasn't that fast, but I'm rolling, all right? And the drawbridge is up, so then I just do the detour, and, I'm, and I am like light, lightning fast. Boom, off, down, second street, make a left, get over the bridge, I'm ready to go. Now, I was so in a rush this morning. Had some building, you know, been on fire, and people were like flagging me down. I've been like, I'm a pastor, the Lord hears my prayers, I'm going to pray for y'all, I got to go, I'm out, I'm sorry. <laughs> and some of us live life that fast all the time and what we see in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is when somebody was in need he pushed pause on his life and he walked with them through the leg of their journey in which they had a need that he could supply my mind is drawn to the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 a priest walks by, the, the religious guy who everybody would have assumed would help this man on the side of the road who had been beaten and left for dead and robbed. And then a Levite passes, the government official that everybody, surely if the priest left the guy, he would go and help the person. 
And these two guys pass by, and one day when we're in heaven, we'll be able to ask Jesus, was one of the points of that story of the Good Samaritan how busy we can get in our lives and how much that detracts from our ability to evangelize and live life on mission and really connect? I love this thought from James Dobson, that is people really don't care how much you know, church, until they know how much you care. And maybe there are some exceptions to that rule, but some of us are living so fast, there's no way for us really to get in touch with people to the point that we feel that they feel like we really do care. And if you'll reflect back on your life and you'll look at the moments where you were really in need and somebody came up alongside you and encouraged you and walked with you through that leg of the race, isn't it those people that have remained in your mind as the ones who have had the biggest, most influential impact on you? And the answer to that for all of us would be yes. So those are the opportunities we have to seize. But if we're too fearful of what people think, or if we think we've got it all figured out, or if we're too busy to connect, we're going to live as secret disciples. What do we need to be instead? We need to be the seeking disciple. I want to read this to you. It's up on the screen, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. In, in the church, we call this the Great Commission. The resurrected Lord has been risen, and he's admonishing his disciples how they should go about living their life. He says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. What exactly did Jesus say here about evangelism? He didn't say invite. He said interact. An invitation implies just a one-time point in contact. Jesus didn't say that. He said go and make disciples of these guys. Get immersed into their lives. Walk with them in their journey. Seek out those who are in need and don't judge. Love and disciple. But some of us treat this like it's an invitation rather than an interaction. I knock on a door. Hey, I got a WFR. We got this preacher who doesn't know anything about sports. His humor is terrible. But do you want to come and worship with us? They're like, uh, it's like 7 a.m. Okay, cool. Just if you need anything, here's my card. I'll, I'll see you later. And then we check evangelism off our to-do list as Christians, and we rest our head on our pillow at night, feeling like we fulfilled the Great Commission. And that church is not it. That's not it. It's not just an invitation. I mean, it is, but it's more an interaction. You've got to interact with somebody and get to know them and show them you care. And at that moment, you gain influence, and then you can make a disciple out of them. I think the other thing about this as seeking disciples, that almost implies go and seek someone that you don't know. Find somebody you don't know, and, and what happens to a lot of us is when we don't know them, we can edit the pieces of ourselves, like my sports lack of knowledge, that we rather them not know, and then it's less fearful to really be in relationship with them and share and live life together. So we're seeking all these people that we don't know, but the method of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to seek someone foreign, but someone familiar. Think about this. I'm reminded of the story of a man named Jairus. His story is in the book of Luke. I'm going to start reading Luke chapter 8, verse 40. 
When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So think about this for a second. Here's a synagogue leader that has influence, that's familiar with the things of God, and his girl is dying. What is his number one priority? He drops everything he's doing and tries everything to help his own child, someone familiar to him. And so he goes to the one person he knows has the reputation for being able to take even someone whose life seems like it's on the line and restore them back to life. And some of us are walking around looking for somebody we don't know when the people in our own families are dying. Men, we have got to raise up and first live life on mission and connect with our wives and our children. It's our responsibility, and if we don't do that first, nobody will. And ladies, you got to become an expert. you got to stop being an expert on everybody else's marriage and family. Now, I know there ain't any ladies up in here that do that, but those uh, in the other congregations that do... You tell y'all's friends, oh, no, you didn't, girl. Don't be talking about their family. You know you got to get your own stuff together. Come on now. But that's it, man. You're looking around, and you're, you're, you're the expert on everybody around you. Man, you got opinion on, well, she shouldn't do that to her child, or how come she talked to her husband like that? But inside your own family is dying because you're not connected to the Lord Jesus Christ enough to look in your, in your own mirror. You're spiritually nearsighted. This starts with your own family, with the people that are familiar to you. And then you take a small step out of that, and it's probably the people in your extended family or at work or your next-door neighbor. And then you take a step out of that, and maybe it's somebody you don't know that God serendipitously and through his providence leads to your path. But likely the people God is calling you to live life on mission for and with are people you already know. You just don't know them well enough to know that they're not in. And you got to get to know them well enough to help them get there. So that's it. We, we, we are not the secret disciple. We are the seeking disciple so that we can find and disciple the sick disciple. You know, there really, is, there really is one prerequisite to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't often talk about this, but the one thing that you need if you're going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ is to be sick. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, the Bible records this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's people who are sick. If you're out there this morning... And you are not in the Lord, you've never been immersed into the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're sick, and you are. If you're not in, you are sick. Then you need to remedy that today and let the same spirit that resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead live in you and surround you and empower you to get on mission. But to those of you under the sound of my voice that have been immersed into Christ, you're Christians, you're on mission, you're trying to get on point, you've got to remember also that there is one prerequisite to evangelism. 
you got to hang out in the doctor's office. Now, I'm going to tell another story on myself because the funniest stuff I have to say is about me. I have what is just about a clinically diagnosable phobia of going to a doctor's office. I'm serious. It's like OCD. So I walk to the door. I'm like, kids, stay back. Stay back. Right? And then I do a two-finger open. Some of y'all do this. Bottom two fingers. I grab the handle. I open it up. I'm shoe right here. Kids stand right in front of me. Don't touch anything. I elbow the door open. We're kind of, we're kind of surveying the area. Okay? No sick people in the direct vicinity. We're good. Let's breach this next door. Okay, two finger open. Go. Kids stand right here. So then you go up to the you, then you go up to the window where they have you sign in. And what do they do? They hand you their pen. Oh no, you ain't handing me that pen. Get me infected with old dude stuff who came in right before me. I got my own pen. I get my own pen out. And sign in with my top two fingers that have yet to touch any surface in that place. It might be infected. So I get my own pen, I set it down, I'm elbow on the hand sanitizer that's right there by the pen. So as long as I wash my shirt and don't rub my elbow on my kid's face, I'm good. <laughs> so we get in there, I got both kids on my lap, I got phone out, I'm trying anything to keep them motivated. And the other thing that we do when we walk in, I'm like, only breathe when you absolutely have to. <laughs> so we walk in there, I'm like, open the door, for him. all right, come on, let's go. <sighs> Open the next door. I'm in. In my house, if one person gets sick, we're a family of five. It's like three weeks of sickness. And you know, there are certain sicknesses that are worse than others, like the stomach bug. That's worst case scenario. That shuts my family down. Weeks. Um, and so we would do just about anything to avoid those kinds of things. And I'm, again, using hyperbole and humor to try and engage you. Some of us treat sinners the same way. Some of us, it's like, ooh, I can't go around that person. I don't want to even breathe the same air that they're breathing for fear that their moral standards or their sin-sick soul might rub off on me. Come on, give me a break. The same spirit that resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you and does work through you. And you're worried about what some sin-sick person right here on earth might, might do to you if you just interact with them a little bit? And this is how some of us in the United States of America interface with people that are dying. The Lord Jesus Christ said he came to seek and save the lost. You've got to get around some of those people and connect with them if you want to make a difference in their lives. I'm going to tell you this, that's scary for a lot of us because we really are at some level, maybe you're not as extreme as I am when I'm in the doctor's office, but really you are that put off by people whose lifestyle doesn't match yours. I am begging you, break free of that. Because your life is never going to have more purpose or more meaning or more joy or more peace or more passion or more hope than it does when you are literally seeing God transform a life from the inside out and flip it from upside down to right side up. There is no high like the most high doing work on somebody's life. Come on now. We're out of time, church. I'm going to pray. I love you all so much. And somebody under the sound of my voice needed this today. If you've never been a Christian and you don't even know what it's like to be in Christ, come forward and let us help disciple you in that process. Maybe you're out there and you know what I'm talking about, but you're sin sick. 
We want to pray over you and encourage you and get you connected. Come forward, introduce yourself. Let us share in that journey with you. Some of you are Christians who are secret, and you need to go to seeking. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come forward. I'm going to close in prayer, and I challenge you to take this opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I love you so much, and I thank you so much for this church and these people. And I ask, God, that you would help them to live life on mission and to connect. If anybody needs to become a Christian, I ask that you'd empower them to remedy that this morning. If any Christians are here that need to get more passionate about the connection, I pray you would help them remedy that today, too. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus' name.